3: Welcome back, Tom Harmon here with you. Uh, on the line with us is Dave Daly, the editor of the New Republic. He's the author of Raft, Why Your Vote Doesn't Count. In fact, he was on our program about that book a while back, and Unrigged, How America Backslayed the Gerrymander and Reinvented Democracy. But uh, to this point, he's got a new piece called The Cancer on the Ballot over at the New Republic's website, newrepublic.com. Dave, welcome back to the program. Tell us about The Cancer on the Ballot. Thanks for having me on, Tom. What we are seeing across this country is a widespread
0: growth of Republican minority rule. We are seeing this through gerrymandering, through the 50 million of us that live in a state where Democratic candidates win more votes, but Republicans hold power. Anyway, uh, we are seeing this in the U.S. Senate, in the Electoral College, on the U.S. Supreme Court. And the point that I want to make in this piece is that this started before Donald Trump. It will not go away if Donald Trump is defeated, and that this is the result of, of decades of Republican political strategizing and map-making and rule-rigging and voter suppression, that um, in many ways it starts with gerrymandering, and then it builds into voter suppression, and then it is reinforced by conservative justices that they have packed the courts with over all of this time. And it has placed us in a very dark spot, and what I try to do in this piece is is to tell the story of this over the last 15 years.
3: Yeah, this is how Republicans are trying to establish or successfully establishing minority rule in the United States or in much of the United States, how you can have a state where more than half of all the people who in that state vote for a Democrat to send to Congress and you end up sending three quarters of the congressional delegation being Republicans, for example or taking over state houses so that they can redistrict, you know, so that they can gerrymander. This was the big campaign in 2010 that Americans didn't know about, that Democrats didn't even know about. I, I, I didn't know. I learned this from reading your article, David, that the Democrats were blindsided by Red Maps, by this campaign to selectively target state house and Senate districts, where they could then flip those House and Senate seats in a way that in 2010 would give them the ability to gerrymander things into, like I said, permanent Republican rule. The ocean that these guys are sitting here with a cup trying to shovel sand into Hmm. is the demographic change in the United States, it seems. Although, that said, I've read a number of rather alarming pieces that the Hispanic radio infrastructure that the the conservatives and, and very, very wealthy people have been buying up radio stations like there's no tomorrow or leasing them and putting right wing Spanish language voices on the air to try to radically reduce the association between Democrats and Hispanics. And that seems to be working. Trump is gaining with Hispanics because he's being, you know, because Biden is being trashed every day on the air in Spanish language in cities all across America by these stations. But still, it seems like they're going against something that's not going to work out for them. How do you see this playing out? You know, I think we keep believing that demographics is destiny and that at some
0: point in time, the changing nature of America is is going to make this more difficult for Republicans to do. I mean, Lindsey Graham at one point in time used to say that they're not making old white people fast enough for the Republican Party to continue prospering. And yet, we said this after Barack Obama was elected in 2008, that the uh, changing nature of the American demographics uh, were going to boost the Democrats long term. And what the Republicans have shown over the past 12 years is just how long You can maintain minority rule with a combination of gerrymandering and voter suppression and packing courts with Republicans who encourage and allow and
3: bless all of this rule rigging and voter suppression. So what's the solution to this and are Democrats taking this seriously? Oh, I think Democrats are taking it seriously. You're exactly right. Democrats were blindsided by this in
0: 2010. I tell the story in the article about how Eric Holder and Barack Obama were taking a look at the numbers in 2012 after Obama wins, and that they can't understand why a pretty good re-election, why holding on to the U.S. Senate didn't also turn into more members of Congress and state legislators in states like Ohio and North Carolina and Florida and Michigan and Wisconsin. And I think that's the story of this last decade of our politics, is how enduring those maps have been. Democrats continue to win more votes in all of those states all decade long, and they cannot take back a single chamber of any of those state uh, legislatures. Democrats are fighting very hard right now to try to flip back those chambers. On the other hand, Republicans are trying to manipulate the census ahead of the 2021 redistricting that is coming. They want to use citizen voting age population, not total population, to draw these lines. This is going to be their tactic to try to make state legislatures older, whiter, more rural, more conservative over the course of the next decade. This is going to be fought out in the courts. All of these battles are going to be fought in the courts. If Democrats do not take seriously the need to expand and right-size and unpack what has happened in the federal judiciary over the course of the last decade and a half, we are going to be in the cold on voting rights for a long, long time
3: to come. Yeah, yeah, I agree. And, and I think that the Democrats need to figure out a way to respond to the message that's being sold both on conservative talk radio and, in particular, on conservative Spanish-language talk radio, or even English-language talk radio that's, you know, very, very heavy on Spanish music or, you know, uh, Mexican-style music, is that, you know, the Republicans are trying to teach you how to fish. The, re- the Democrats want to give you a can of tuna fish and say, depend on me, I'll keep giving you tuna fish if you just hang out with me. And the Democrats need to figure out a way to say, well, you know, that, that all sounds very good, but what about when there's no fish? I mean, it's, it's like, you know, the Kennedy's old, you know, a rising tide lifts all boats. Well, what if you don't have a boat? Um, <laughs> this is probably an imperfect way to respond to it. But, but the old conservative memes that my dad used to recite to me in the late 1950s and early 1960s are back. And they are seductive to some people, you know, the idea of, you know, rugged individualism and you can do it and, and, uh, you know, kind of Norman Vincent Peelism. Any thoughts in the last minute we have here, David, before we hit this break uh, on how Democrats can get out of this?
0: These institutions, these movements have been built uh, by Republicans over the course of decades. We're talking about the judges that they have nurtured through the federal society going back to law school. You're talking about a media infrastructure that Republicans have understood the importance of ever since they ditched the the fairness doctrine 30 years ago. And we're talking about Republicans who have understood the importance of building power in state legislatures and, and local boards, Ever since the Powell memo back in the early 1970s, Democrats have got to understand that this is not about winning a single election or winning a single White House election. If you're going to build power, you need to build movement power.
3: There you go. There you go. David Daly, his uh, new article over at at, uh, newrepublic.com is titled A Cancer on the Ballot. He's also the author of Rat f Why Your Vote Doesn't Count, and Unrigged, How Americans Fought Back, Slayed the Gerrymander, and Reinvented Democracy. David, thanks a lot for dropping by. Always a pleasure, Tom. Anytime. Hey, we have a new video up over at TomHartman.com. I really enjoy doing these separate from what we're doing on the air because sometimes I can say things that I, you know, would be impolitic or inappropriate to say on the air. Like the name of the website that I'm talking about in this video, and I lay it out and share it with you on the video, it's ratbleepingthecourts.com. And the bleeping, of course, is a word that you just can't say on the air that starts with F. And... Uh, this website is just outing these judges that Donald Trump and the Federalist Society have been sending through Mitch McConnell's Senate like a frigging assembly line and how unqualified they are, how hateful they are, how aggressively they've worked to screw students to deny, yeah, well, one of them actually said that you know, women who are on birth control pills, that should be reason to fire people. Right? I mean, this, it's just insane. You can check it out over at TomHartman.com. Tom Harmon here with you. A lot going on in the world. And, you know, let's talk about it. I did see an article a while ago that was suggesting that it would be a bad thing if we discovered alien, intelligent alien life out there. They might want to eat us or something, or it might be politically bad. I, I don't know, but not something I think about a lot, but it seems like maybe I should. <laughs> anyway, let's pick up some of your phone calls here. Daryl in Polsbo, Washington. Hey, Daryl, what's on your mind?
4: Hey Tom, thank you for everything you do for
5: us, and I have a question about Mitch McConnell and his health. My wife showed me a picture last night where his hands looked like lizard hands, like an alien, and his face was all bruised, and he looked really ill, and I wondered if you or any of your viewers had any uh, insight into what's going on with him.
3: There's a lot of speculation about this, Daryl, in the media. There's uh, stuff over on Raw Story and Daily Kos about it, it's all over Twitter. In fact, I think it was in the Washington Post. Mitch McConnell is saying he's just fine. The two possibilities that are most discussed in the social media, neither of which are, you know, even remotely confirmed, because McConnell is not saying anything, are number one, that he's on blood thinners and, you know, maybe he fell and, you know, bruised his hand and his lip in the fall, which happens to people who are on blood thinners. You know, he may have some medical. He's 78 years old, I think. And the other possibility is that he has COVID, and uh, he's taking the same drug, you know, the monoclonal antibodies that are not available to anybody else that Donald Trump took. And that requires an infusion. So they put that needle in your, excuse me, in your hand and, and you have to sit there for an hour or so while it drips, drip, drips into your, into your bloodstream. If it goes in too fast, it can produce an immune response that's just, you know, wild. So they, they have to infuse it over several hours and that can lead to large bruises. That's why Trump had that giant bandage on the back of his hand when he was at Walter Reed but nobody really knows. You know, I posited on uh, Twitter, obviously making a joke about it, that his human suit has gotten loose and he needs to unzip it and reapply the lubricant and the adhesive and put his human suit back on and zip it up nice and tight. That it's just, you know, starting to slip off, you know, a joke about lizard people. You know, it was just a joke, though. Beyond that, I don't know, Daryl, you got a theory? I do not have a theory
5: except that he did not look good, and it wasn't just some uh, random bruising. Both his hands were messed up, and his face looked like he had a pile of makeup on, so I suppose it's going to come out sooner or later, but I just thought perhaps somebody out there might have caught something that we we haven't gotten out here in Paulsville, Washington, yet.
3: I think that what people who are looking at this through a political lens are suspecting is that either he's sick or he's injured and under any other circumstances he would have just taken a sick day or a sick week and stayed home but because he's trying to push amy coney barrett onto the supreme court before more news comes out about the horrors of her past and her positions he's just toughing it out and he's just going to push through and and show up and make it happen, and then he'll go home and collapse afterwards. Again, nobody knows. So, uh, uh, Daryl, it is a, you know, I mean, he is a public figure. It is a, a topic that is fair to speculate about, but beyond that, I don't know. Here on the Tom Hartman program, occupying the media three hours a day, five days a week, as we defend America from the conservative weapons of mass destruction. On the science revolution this week, there is more news from the Republican death cult. We need to start calling things what they are. The Republican Party is a death cult. Ryan Felton drops by on why dangerous forever chemicals are still allowed in America's drinking water. Professor Richard Wolf will be talking about how and why capitalism failed to protect us from COVID-19. And in geeky science, Trump makes the case for Medicare for all. Tune in for the science revolution wherever fine podcasts are available. Picking up your phone calls and uh, Neil in Gloucester, Mass. Hey, Neil, what's on your mind today?
6: Yes, uh, we, our old Governor Romney here believes that a person is the same or, or a corporation should have the same rights as a person. But in researching it, I can't find any place where corporations became legal, where there's an amendment to the Constitution or a law that, it was created to make corporations legal.
3: I'll give you a thumbnail sketch of this, Neil. It'll, it'll take probably about three minutes, but I think it's worth going through periodically, and it's been probably a year since I have. Uh, I wrote a book about this. It's called Unequal Protection, How Corporations Became People. And so you know, if you want any of the references, if you want reference to anything I'm citing here, it's in that book. Number one in Dartmouth College versus somebody, 1815 Supreme Court case, the supreme court ruled and neil thanks for the call there's i'm getting some noise back from you so i'll just do this uh, without you but in 1815 the supreme court ruled that a corporation was an artificial person in other words they had keep in mind the corporate form at that point was very very new the corporation as we understand it today had only existed for about a hundred years at that point and it really bore no resemblance to today's corporations but anyhow the supreme court in that case in the dartmouth case said corporations are persons, but they are artificial persons. So there's two, and, the, and the reason they had to establish some kind of personhood was so that they could sue and be sued, and so they could pay taxes, and so they could be penalized if they broke the law. So we started with that. Then in 1886, the railroad barons wanted to be able to use the 14th Amendment, which says that everybody's uh, entitled to equal protection under the law. They wanted to use this to fight taxes in California. And six or seven of these cases, they were referred to as the California tax cases, were sent up to the Supreme Court by Stephen J. Field, who was the head of the California, of the Ninth Circuit at that time, and also on the Supreme Court. Back in those days, the Supreme Court met three months a year, and the other nine months of the year, the guys did what was called riding the circuit. They were out in the field, as it were. And Fields was being bribed by Jay Gould and some of the the big uh, railroad barons. In fact, they were telling him that they would help him become president one day if he would just get them corporate personhood. And what they wanted, this case that was brought forward, this was one of the seven cases. It was called Santa Clara County versus Southern Pacific Railroad. And Southern Pacific Railroad was claiming that because they paid two cents a mile in Santa Clara County, a penny a mile in Santa Ana County, that they were not being treated under the law equally. And the court ruled that that was a spurious argument. That didn't make any sense. uh, You know, that California law covered this. It wasn't even a constitutional ruling. The court ruled against the railroads. And you would think that was the end of it. But the clerk of the court, a man by the name of John Chandler Bancroft Davis, whose father had been the governor of Massachusetts. He's a very wealthy, bon vivant, internationally famous guy. He was the clerk of the Supreme Court. He was there 12 months out of the year. The clerk actually had more power than the Supreme Court justices, arguably, back then. He wrote a what's called a head note, which is a commentary on the case. It has no legal standing whatsoever. And again, in this case, the 1886 case, Santa Clara County versus Southern Pacific Railroad, the Supreme Court did not rule that corporations are people. In other words, entitled to rights under the 14th Amendment, the same as natural persons. It did not rule that. But in the head note, Davis said that the Chief Justice, Morris Remick and Morrison Remick Waite, had actually said that in an aside to the lawyers when they were arguing the case. And so as of the time that I wrote Unequal Protection, which was in 2002, there had been 34 Supreme Court cases, and there have probably been more since then, uh, certainly Citizens United did, um, where the Supreme Court pointed back to the head note, which had no legal standing, and said, Morrison-Ramick Waite, the, the, the Chief Justice of the U.S. Supreme Court in 1886, said corporations are persons, and we agree. But the court has never officially decided that. But because the court has, I mean, the court can quote Mickey Mouse, right? They, they were quoting a headnote which had no legal standing. But the first time they quoted that headnote, which was about, as I recall, 10 or 11 years after 1886, it would have been the 1890s. The first time they quoted that head note, that was when it became precedent. And then they super established this with the Citizens United decision in 20, what was it, 2010? October 2010, as I recall, for Citizens United... So that's how we got here. You've got, this was a a doctrine invented by the Supreme Court. It can be fixed by Congress, but Congress has not seen fit to fix it. Or it could be fixed by the Supreme Court, which is why MoveToAmend.org for years has been trying to get an amendment passed by Congress and by the states to say that corporations aren't persons and that money is not speech. So that's the history of it. I hope that's helpful to you. Tom Hartman here with you, fair and only slightly unbalanced. Stick I've written a bunch of op-eds on this over the years, by the way, and all of my op-ed writing is aggregated over at HartmanReport.com. And welcome to Tom Hartman University Book Club. And today we're reading from Unequal Protection, How Corporations Became People and How You Can Fight Back. This is Chapter 11. It's titled Corporate Control of Politics, page 170. During the bruising primary election season of 2008, a right-wing group put together a 90-minute hit job on Hillary Clinton and wanted to run it on TV stations in strategic states. The Federal Election Commission ruled that the advertisements for the documentary were actually campaign ads and thus fell under the restrictions on campaign spending of the McCain-Feingold Act and thus stopped them from airing. Corporate contributions to campaigns have been repeatedly banned and in various ways since 1907 when Republican President Teddy Roosevelt pushed through the Tillman Act. Citizens United, the right wing group, sued to the Supreme Court with right wing hitman and former Reagan Solicitor General Ted Olson, the man who argued Bush's side of Bush v. Gore, as their lead lawyer. This new case, Citizens United versus Federal Election Commission, presented the best opportunity for the Roberts Court to use its five vote majority. Completely rewrite the face of American politics, rolling us back to the pre 1907 era of the robber barons. And if there was one man to do it, it was John Roberts. Although he was handsome with a nice smile and photogenic young children, Roberts was no friend to average working Americans. If anything, he was the most radical judicial activist appointed to the court in more than a century. He'd worked most of his life in the interest of the rich and powerful and was chomping at the bit. For a chance to turn more of America over to his friends. As Jeffrey Tubin wrote in The New Yorker, quote, in every major case since he became the nation's 17th Chief Justice, Roberts has sided with the prosecution over the defendant, the state over the condemned, the executive branch over the legislative, and the corporate defendant over the individual plaintiff. Even more than Scalia, who has embodied judicial conservatism during a generation of service on the Supreme Court, Roberts has served the interests and reflected the values of the contemporary Republican Party. End of quote. And the fastest way the modern Republican Party could recover its power over the next decade was to immediately clear away all impediments to unrestrained corporate participation in electoral politics. If a corporation likes a politician, it can ensure that he is elected every time if it becomes upset with the politician, it can carpet bomb her district and with a few million dollars worth of ads and politically destroy her. In the citizens united case, the Roberts court listened to arguments and took briefs and even discussed it among themselves as if they were going to make a decision. But instead of deciding the case on the relatively narrow grounds on which it originally had been argued, whether a single part of a single piece of legislation in this case McCain-Feingold was unconstitutional, the court asked for it to be reargued in September 2009. And asked that the breadth of the arguments be expanded to re-examine the rationales for Congress to have any power to regulate so-called free speech by corporations. In this, they were going along with a request from Theodore B. Olson, who argued Bush v. Gore and would not now not just look at this narrow case, but go back nearly 20 years to re-examine and perhaps overturn their own ruling in the Austin v. Michigan Chamber of Commerce case. Where the court held that it was constitutional for Congress to pass limits on corporate political activities, as well as its decision in 2003 to uphold McCain Feingold as constitutional. The setup for this 2010 decision came in June of 2007 in the Federal Election Commission versus Wisconsin Right to Life case, in which the Robert Courts ruled that the FCC could not prevent Wisconsin Right to Life from running ads just because it was a corporation the idea of congress passing laws that limited corporate free speech was clearly horrifying to both roberts and scalia scalia went after the nineteen ninety austin v michigan chamber of commerce case in which the then rehnquist court had ruled that the michigan chamber of commerce was limited in its free speech in a political campaign because it was a corporation scalia complained this austin was the only pre mcconnell case that this court had ever permitted the government to restrict political speech Based on the corporate identity of the speaker, Austin upheld state restrictions on corporate independent expenditures, and God forbid, the statute had been modeled after the federal statute, the BCRA two hundred three amended. End of quote. The Austin case, Scalia concluded, with four others nodding, was a significant departure from ancient First Amendment principles. In my view, it was wrongly decided. Scalia was quoted at length from opinions in the Gross gene v. American Press nineteen thirty six case. In Scalia's words, quote, holding that corporations are guaranteed the freedom of speech and of press, safeguarded by the due process of law clause of the 14th Amendment. He also quoted the 1986 Pacific Gas and Electric Company versus Public Utility Commission of California case the identity of the speaker is not decisive in determining whether speech is protected. Corporations and other associations, like individuals, contribute to the discussion, debate, and the dissemination of information and ideas that the First Amendment seeks to foster. The bottom line for Scalia was, quote, the principle that such advocacy is at the heart of the First Amendment's protection and is indispensable to decision-making in a democracy is no less true because the speech comes from a corporation rather than an individual. The book Unequal Protection: How Corporations Became People and How You Can Fight Back. Peter in Spokane, Washington. Hey Peter, what's up? Yeah, on ABC News after the debate at around minus
5: 1857, so about 19 minutes to the end of the show, Chris Christie goes on. And I was wondering if you saw his eyes change over. Really, really strange. What are you talking about? His eyes, fl- it's like he had a double lens, and I even called a couple oh. people to have him watch it. <laughs> really odd. 1857, yeah. minus 1857.
3: Okay, I'll have to check it out, Peter. I don't know if you're punking me or not. Although I did on Twitter, uh, Chauncey DeVega tweeted a picture of Mitch McConnell's hands that came off drudge. I mean, you know, this is on the top of the drudge report uh, that Mitch McConnell's hands are all uh, purple and he's got bandages and stuff. And it looks like badly bruised, you know, like, like, you know, a car ran over his hands or something, you know, either he's on blood thinners or he's had COVID or something. I mean, there's something, something going on with Mitch McConnell. And so Chauncey tweeted this going, uh, you know, what's the deal with Mitch McConnell's hands? I mean, you know, it just doesn't make any sense. And so I tweeted a response to him saying the skin on his human suit is slipping. He needs to unzip it and reapply the lubricant adhesive so it fits correctly again. (laughs) And and, uh, one person is like, oh, you're just like the people in Rwanda. You're, You're dehumanizing Mitch McConnell. I'm sorry. You can't dehumanize Mitch McConnell. And telling a joke about McConnell being a lizard person is a completely different thing from going on the radio for 13 hours and calling one particular race of people, group of people, cockroaches and encouraging people to go out and kill them. It's a completely it's just like, oh, my God, this has got this has got to be some kind of troll or or weird person or something. I don't know. But in any case. Fred Bremerton, Washington. Hey, Fred, thanks for listening to KBCS. What's up?
6: good morning. Good morning, Tom. I saw that whole thing. And uh, the only thing I can comment on is the fact that Donald Trump is going to lose, in my mind, in my chart. The Mountain Astrologer, I've been reading it for a number of years now. It's a great magazine. It's a great magazine. The physics. Sir? I said it's a great magazine, magazine,
3: and apparently we have a little bit of uh, uh, delay here. My apologies, Fred. Keep going. I'm
6: I'm going to just cut to the chase here. In 2016, doing the chart of Donald Trump, several of his houses, his birth house, his natal chart, the day, time, and place that he was born, showed that his chart was within one degree of the United States birth chart. He had several of his houses. The Jupiter was right in line with the U.S. Saturn within one degree. His Venus was in um, lockstep with Mercury. And then his Pluto was also in conjunct or in alignment with the U.S. birth chart. Therefore, in 2016, he had to win. He had to win. There was no way around it. But right now, he's running what they call in this book a negative Rahu. And Rahu happens to be Egomania, um, ego paranoia, mental instability, compulsive behavior, willful ignorance, thievery, a relaxed attitude towards lying and ethics, in general, instability, desires, and skill in manipulating others for one's own benefit. And
3: Wow. I think you've nailed it, Fred. Fred, I got to run, but thank you. We'll be right back. Kevin in Durham, North Carolina. Hey, Kevin, what's on your mind?
7: Hey, Tom. Um You know, it it really amazes me how conservatives, they love to position Trump as this tough guy. He's a strong man. And yet, this guy whines and complains and moans and groans more than any public figure I've ever seen in my life. You know, he's whining about the debates. He's whining about the debate moderator. He's whining about Leslie Stahl. And it's just like, you know, this is what you signed up for. You know, being the president is a tough job. You're going to get tough questions. And if you can't handle tough questions from a, reporter then why are you even there you know leave especially after two hundred twenty thousand people have died and you don't want tough questions asked i mean give me a break i'm just tired of the whining and the complaining i get tough questions on my
3: job well, and you know, hopefully in a few months we won't have to listen to it ever again <laughs> it's although i have well, a feeling I listen to, your show, I listen
7: to your show i listened to your show i listened to you for years and you're not afraid to take calls from people who disagree with you You're not afraid to debate conservatives. And this guy is just, he's just a baby. Mm -hmm.
3: Yeah, yeah, I'm with you, you, Kevin. And I think that's probably one of the reasons why it is increasingly looking like a certainty that he is going to lose. Although we have to keep in mind when the opinion polls show a Republican losing by four or five points, the margin of voter suppression in Florida, North Carolina, Wisconsin, and Pennsylvania in the last election was five points, 5.1 points on average, you know, where in each one of those four states, Hillary Clinton went in five points ahead of Donald Trump, according to the exit polls. This is not the pre-polls and ended up losing anyway, because so many people who turned out to vote didn't realize that their names had been purged off the voting rolls, you know, and, and, you know, so it's, we got a challenge here, but Kevin, thank you. I, you know, spot on. He, he is a whiner. He really is. You're listening to Tom Hartman.
1: Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital.
8: And we're taking
3: your calls. Russ in Windsor Locks, Connecticut. Hey, Russ, what's on your mind today?
4: Hi, Tom. Uh, I have some thoughts. This email that went out from Proud Boys threatening people if they didn't vote for Trump and telling them they had to change their party and everything. Mm-hmm. And then uh, they came out like a few hours later with that press conference saying, no, it's not the Proud Boys, it's Iran. And I immediately thought, wow, that's way too pat, way too easy. And it dawned on me, I think this is what happened. I think the Proud Boys did send that email. They forgot that their name would be on it when they sent it out. And then they had to scramble to cover themselves because the administration couldn't have the Proud Boys sending out emails like that. So they came up with their old whipping boy, Iran.
3: Yeah. I'm inclined to believe the intelligence. Uh, I'm not inclined to believe the interpretation of the intelligence. But when Radcliffe, who used to be a, you know, hardcore right-wing Republican member of Congress who was funded by by the Koch network, uh, when he came out and he said, you know, Iran sent these and they sent them to hurt Trump, when obviously they were, uh, you know, designed to hurt Biden. I mean, they were sent into largely minority communities and they threatened people. Uh, you know, which is nothing new. I mean, voter suppression against minorities by, you know, Republican white candidates is like, you know, it's been it's a 50 year trend. So I don't see why they would have to lie about that. And, and also, I don't think the Proud Boys would be dumb enough to sign their own names to something like that. Instead, for, they it, would just I think
4: you know, they I think they just forgot that their name would be on the email when they sent them out. And it may, yeah. it may have been just one of their one of their people that did it. But they're such liars about everything. And Iran's the, well, the, the Iran's their whipping boy all the time. So uh,
3: I know, that, and this, that's, and, and that's and this is I, the this is the problem when when you've got a president who on an average day is t- telling between twenty and fifty lies, and people around him are, are obviously lying. You know, I mean, the Centers for Disease Control. No, we didn't water down the you know the recommendations to the meatpacking yeah, plants yeah. and, and et cetera, et cetera. I mean, he just goes on and on how how corru- how Donald Trump has corrupted our government so so severely that we can't even trust when our intelligence officials come out. It's really a tragedy, it really is. Russ, thanks for the call. Norma in Montgomery, Alabama. Hey, Norma, what's on your mind?
9: Oh, a lot. First of all, Mitch McConnell looks fine standing on the floors of the Senate. You can watch that on C-SPAN, too, people. Um, But they've been trying to uh, put in motions there to stop Amy, Comey Barrett's nomination, you know, send it back to the Judiciary Committee. But we still have a shot as a people to at least aggravate these people. Anybody can send an email to their senator's office. They can send a postcard. It costs 50 cents. It's a blank square, three by five piece of paper. If you walk in the post office, you can buy a stack of them. They're about 50 cents a piece. They come stamped. You write your senator's name on it, and you turn it around and write vote no and put from your zip code, from whatever your zip code is on it. Let them know because, particularly, these people who are up for re-election, and we yeah, have to. If you want further. it to get there
3: quickly, though, Norma, if I, let me insert something here real quick. If you send it to their Washington D.C. address, it can take six weeks to get there because it's got to go through anthrax screening. So instead, send it to one of their offices local in offices the state, in one state. of their local offices.
9: Yes, if you pull up their web page, you'll find plenty of offices that are local. You can call them, you'll get their voicemail, you can email them, and they'll never answer you. But you can get their attention by dumping this mail on them by Monday. And it's not just the senators that are up for re-election in 10 days. There's a whole other class, Class 3, is coming up for re-election in 22 they're looking at two years. They're going to have to start campaigning again next year to be able to keep that seat in 22. And that's, you know, my senator, Shelby, was 86 in May. He'll be 88 in 22. I do not want him reelected, I want somebody else. So uh, everybody, you cannot just stop and think that this is it. It's a win-and-lose day. It is not a win-and-lose day, or you can just forget it. Go crawl in your cave. This is going to be a fight for your life for the next 10 years. And it's a fight for the life of your children and your grandchildren, because if they cut all of the amendments off of the Constitution because they they think, oh, it's just too much trouble to listen to all those whiny people, and those whiny people want too much stuff, you know, we are the wonderful ones, and you don't deserve anything, the financial segregation, the financial snobbery. This is what you're going to live with. There is evil loose in the land, whether people want to recognize it or not. And we do have to keep fighting, and you cannot live a life where everything you say or do is censored by someone who doesn't think you are doing it their way. You have to be able to live free, and we're not going to have that with this Supreme Court they're trying to create, and we're not going to have it with this Republican Party, which is, I I don't really think it's a Republican Party anymore. It is a corporate-owned group of people. That are obeying someone else. They don't. They. I don't think they even consider the American population anymore. We're just an aggravation. But we we live here, and we have to have our rights, or we're going to be up a creek, and there will be no rights at all for the next generations. You know, you've got yeah. to get out there and vote, and you've and quit worrying about whether or not the Green Party has one percent or not. We need as many votes for the total national vote as we can get to keep the electoral college from anointing Trump again. Well, how hard is that to figure out, people?
3: <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I'm I'm with you Norma and and uh you know, this is a, a long-term thing, and, and, and uh, I think it was Jeff Clements, uh, an acquaintance of mine, who wrote a book called The Gangs of America, you know, basically about this. And, and it's not just, I mean, it goes back a hundred years. It's about the rise of conservative power, the rise of corporate power, the rise of oligarch power in America and their use of the Supreme Court to get there. And uh, spot on, you, you, uh, as always, you absolutely nailed it. Norma, thank you very much. Stephanie in Hopkins Park, Illinois. Hey, Stephanie, what's up? I'm sorry,
10: I want to ask you a question of your opinion. If the Democrats take the House and Senate, are they willing to deal with another shutdown? And if they did, what would it look like under a Democratic uh, administration?
8: Uh,
3: shutting down, do you mean shutting down the government or do you mean uh, shutting down businesses to stop COVID?
8: Uh, To stop the COVID.
3: Ah, okay. Uh, The Republicans have tried to paint this as as a kind of either or thing. You either do nothing or you shut everything down and and have everybody hide out constantly. Um, The way that other countries are doing this, Stephanie, and that I think that we should be doing, too. And and this is consistent with what I've been hearing Joe Biden say, is that if everybody if you can get 95 percent of the population wearing masks, 95 percent of the time, and 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 people uh do not participate in a very small number of dangerous activities going to bars going to tightly packed restaurants going to any kind of venue where you've got a large number of people groups over 10 things like that we've got to reinvent our bars and reinvent our restaurants so that we can enjoy them and have social experience without spreading disease and and in some cases we're doing that but if you can just limit those things then you don't need to shut down the economy because you will slow down the virus to the point where its replication rate drops below one, which means that over time you'll have fewer and fewer and fewer cases eventually petering out to nothing. It might take six months, but it'll eventually go to nothing. On the other hand, there are a few areas that we refer to as hotspots where it has allowed it's been allowed to just explode you know we're seeing this in city after city about 2 weeks after trump does a rally there for example and when you've got one of those hot spots like south dakota has right now if south dakota was a country they would have the worst covid outbreak in the world right now so in that case then for a couple of weeks, you shut everything down to get to, to basically stop the virus from spreading and to be able to sort out all the people who have it versus the people who don't, and then you put into place the mask wearing and the restrictions on risky activity. But you open your economy back up, and this is the that, you know, this is what other countries are that doing I that works know, just fine. It's just it's a huge hassle, and Trump doesn't want to do a huge hassle. But would that
10: include a stimulus so people can at least survive who have to?
3: Yeah, you know, like, oh, that's what the Democrats are saying. Yeah. In fact, back in May, they passed a a bill. It's called the Heroes Act that has over three trillion dollars so that since May, if the if if Mitch McConnell would have taken this up in the Senate and and passed it, it's already passed the House six hundred dollars a week to every American. And, and basically, and, and suspending uh, uh, evictions and things like that. I mean, there's really good, comprehensive money for states and, and local governments so they can keep their police and fire working, all that stuff. Yeah, the Democrats have this under control to stuff. Tom Hartman.
2: will. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archives.
3: And welcome back. Robin in Kingston, Washington. Hey, Robin, what's on your mind today?
5: Hi, Tom. I'm just uh, trying to get out the vote and to uh, give some people ideas how to avoid complacency and to relieve stress by doing something. It sort of just recently dawned on me that the Senate is basically, in some ways, two-thirds of our own national self-governance. So, strategically speaking, the left should and the Democrats should uh, capture it in 2020. And so this what I'm recommending is that um, lefties and Democrats in blue states and red states can help purple states uh, elect Democratic senators by donating uh, phone banking for people or, or whatever. I myself have already donated to Sarah Gideon and Senator Cantwell up here in Washington State has just sent out an email for donations she's chosen four of um the possible uh uh democratic senators who can who can get to the balance and uh so i just if it's okay with you i'll just tell the there are many states out there but i, I can just mention the states that people might want to look at and Go see if it. they can chip in okay well obviously maine which i did Arizona, Colorado, Georgia has two, Iowa, the Carolinas, Montana, Texas, and Alaska. Uh, I All stay right. away from Kentucky, Mississippi, and Alabama, but Kentucky may may slow. So the point is, this to be a tremendous way for... Uh, for people to uh, be able to really get control of two-thirds of our government. And then speaking to the your audience, uh, which I call the elderly left, one of the things that I have discovered in doing my civil information activism when I deal with the youth is they actually have been brainwashed to believe that Social Security would not be around for them. And I believe that I believe that Biden has just said he's going to lower the age. Okay, so what a wonderful discussion and conversation to have again between the generations as to, you know, the older people, more senior people amongst us to have. That discussion in their generational family tree with the kids and let them know look we're making changes what you think is wrong about Social Security not being available for you and please vote so I, yeah I, we, we've got some things to do
3: yeah I, I'm, I'm totally with you and it was about a, it was about ten years ago that I wrote an op-ed um, and I included it I think in my book rebooting the American dream as I recall um, suggesting that if we lower the uh, retirement age, the Social Security eligibility age from 65 to 55. Now, Biden's talking about taking it to 60, as I recall. Uh, but if we lowered it to 55, only about half of the people eligible would take, would take it, maybe not even half. But what that would do is it would open up a mind-boggling number of uh, jobs for younger people to come into. So it increases entry-level jobs, number one. And and number two, it would probably pay for itself um, because it would stim- It would have such a stimulative effect on the economy. Um, you know, people 55 to 65 is one of the major sectors where you see large pockets of poverty, particularly in minority populations, but even among uh, among the white population. So, uh, I agree, Tom. you know, giving them, let's, let's, yeah, let's talk it up. Let's do it. Let's talk. I'm it with up. you, Robin. I'm with you. You just did, yeah, and, and you did a fine job of it. Thank you.
1: but you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit
2: GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. I normally find bras to be so uncomfortable and constricting, but Skims has changed that. You know I love Skims underwear, so I finally tried their bras, and Skims has delivered again. Skims bras are worth the hype for the amazing shape and support they give, but what I wasn't expecting was how comfortable they are too. I've tried so many bras in the past, Plus, get free shipping on all orders over $75. If you haven't yet, be sure to let them know we sent you. After you place your order, select Podcast in the survey, and select our show in the drop-down menu that follows.
3: Hi, it's the Tom Hartman University Book Club. We're reading today from Rebooting the American Dream, from the introduction, Let's uh, titled Back to the Future. On April 14th, 1789 george washington was out walking through the fields at mount vernon his home in virginia when charles thompson the secretary of the continental congress rode up on horseback thompson had a letter for washington from the president pro tem of the new constitutionally created united states senate telling washington that he'd just been elected president and the inauguration was set for april thirtieth in the nation's capital new york city This created two problems for george washington the first was saying goodbye to his eighty two-year-old mother which the fifty seven-year-old washington did that night she gave him her blessing and told him it was the last time he'd see her alive as she was gravely ill and indeed she died before he returned from new york The second problem was finding a suit of clothes made in the united states of america for that he sent a courier to his old friend and fellow general from the american revolutionary war henry knox washington couldn't find a suit made in america because in the years prior to the American Revolution, the British East India Company, whose tea was thrown into the Boston Harbor by outraged colonists after the Tea Act of 1773, gave the world's largest transnational corporation a giant tax break. But the British East India Tea Company controlled the manufacture and the transportation of a whole range of goods, including fine clothing. Cotton and wool could be grown and sheared in the colonies, but it had to be sent to England to be turned into clothing. This was a routine policy for England. And it's why until India achieved its independence in 1947, Mahatma Gandhi, who was assassinated a year later, sat at his spinning wheel for his lectures and daily spun clothing in his own home. It was like his salt march, a protest against the colonial practices of England, and an entreaty to his fellow Indians to make their own clothes, to gain independence from British companies and institutions, even though making their own clothes, making their own salt, was against British law. Fortunately for George Washington, an American clothing company had been established on April 28, 1783, in Hartford, Connecticut, by a man named Daniel Hinsdale. And it produced high quality woolen and cotton clothing, as well as items made from imported silk. It was to Hinsdale's company that Knox turned, and he helped Washington get, in time for his inauguration two weeks later, a nice, but not excessively elegant, brown American made suit. He wore British black later for the celebration and the most famous painting. But he was sworn in wearing an American-made suit. When Washington became president in 1789, most of America's personal and industrial products of any significance were manufactured in England or in other British colonies. Washington asked his Treasury Secretary, Alexander Hamilton, what could be done about that. And Hamilton came up with an 11-point plan to foster American manufacturing, which he presented to Congress in 1791. By 1793, most of its points had either been made into law by Congress or formulated into policy by either President Washington or the various states, which put our country on a path of developing its industrial base and generating the largest source of federal revenue for more than a hundred years. Those strategic proposals built the greatest industrial powerhouse the world had ever seen. And after more than 200 successful years, Alexander Hamilton's program was only abandoned during the administrations of Ronald Reagan, George H.W. Bush, and Bill Clinton, and remained abandoned to this day. Modern day China, however, implemented most of Hamilton's plan uh, just in the 1990s and has brought about a remarkable transformation of its nation in a single generation. Hamilton's 11 point plan for American manufacturers is a primary inspiration for this book. It was part of a larger work titled Alexander Hamilton's Report on the Subject of Manufactures, made in his capacity as Secretary of the Treasury. It's the official title. And then I, I list Hamilton's 11 point plan for American manufacturers. And I'll share just the headlines of this. He starts out by saying, A full view now having been taken to the inducements to the promotion of manufacturers in the United States, in other words, why we should do this, accompanied with an examination of the principal objections, which are commonly urged in opposition. This was Jefferson's objection that he didn't want America to be a manufacturing nation he wanted us to be an agricultural nation Hamilton says it is proper in the next place to consider the means by which it may be affected so here he says in order to for a, to a better judgment of the means proper to be presented to the United States it will be of use to advert to those which have been employed with success in other countries in other words're stealing this idea from England it was called the Tudor plan when King Henry the seventh came up with it so, number one, protecting duties, import taxes, now called tariffs, or duties on those foreign articles which are the rivals of domestic ones intended to be encouraged. So, number one, raise the cost of imported goods. Number two, prohibition of rival articles or duties equivalent to prohibitions. On some things that we think it's really important to make in America, make the duties, the, t- the tariffs, so high that nobody would want to import them. So, there'll be a strong domestic manufacturing presence. Three, prohibitions on the exportation of materials of manufacture why provide f- raw materials to other countries like we're doing right now to china to make stuff to sell back to us when we can simply make it here manufacture it here number 4 pecuniary bounties this is one of the most uh, efficacious means of encouraging manufacturers basically you know subsidizing growing and new nascent industries so that's just up to number 4 there are 11 points the rest of it's all in the book rebooting the american dream and you can find it online Welcome back. As we're uh, wrapping up this week, and uh, let's see here, Sandra in Omaha, Nebraska. Hey, Sandra, what's on your mind today?
10: Well, you were talking about provisional ballots earlier, and I just wondered if someone arrives at the ballot station or at the voting place, and then they tell him, "No, you're not. You're not registered." He says, "Yes, I want to register right now." He has all of his documents. They let him do that is the ballot they give him then a standard ballot or is it going to be still
3: a provisional ballot well it depends on the state laws and there are some states where you can do what you just described sandra and other states where you can't and at that granular a level i'm not certain but i'm pretty sure that
10: there's do you know if there's something on the ballot that says it's a provisional ballot so that they can
3: know or does Again, that depends out, on the state. In, in some okay. states, they're marked as provisional ballots. In some states, they just go in a different box or in a different colored envelope. So, okay, you know, well. it's, uh, it's tough to know. I don't know how it's done in Nebraska. Yeah. Uh, well, frankly, I'm I already voted. How, so I'm you know, not worried, but I'm,
10: I'm worried about everybody else.
3: <laughs> yeah. And it's a legitimate concern. And 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 the bottom line is, if they try to give you a provisional ballot, wherever you may be, do everything you can to fight that and, you know, only vote a provisional ballot as a last resort. And sometimes you can get them to go back and look at your old voter registration and see that, oh, gee, you got purged just last month. And you can say, well, unpurge me right now, you know, and in some states you can do that, in other states you can't, you know, but you can say, I mean, there's there's 200,000 people in Georgia that have just been purged in the last few months. Um, The Greg Palace found all are still living where they were and all should be registered voters. So, yeah. you know, whether the Georgia law will allow them to get unpurged or not, I don't know off the top of my head. Greg would know. But uh, these are issues that we really need to be having a national conversation about. Sandra, thank you for the call. It was an excellent question. Carrie, in New Windsor, New York. Hey, Carrie, what's up?
10: Hey, I think there's a huge oversight uh, where people are using the mailboxes to put in their ballots. Uh, Most people who use mailboxes are in cities. Most people in cities vote Democratic. According to Greg Palast, one in five uh, mail-in ballots gets thrown out. And one reason is because of no postmark, okay? And post offices do not automatically postmark ballots that come out of mailboxes or letters for that matter okay they just don't have a t- the time also there was some guy who was in charge of the post office um, who talks who, who apparently took out a bunch of machines i just saw two commercials from the new jersey board of election and one from the new york board of election okay both of them showed mailboxes and if if i i'd like mm-hmm. to see um, what these commercials said and what time they were on what channels they were on if it's okay um, yeah. Well, it, it won't way. make
3: any difference, Kerry. I, I can't access them. But the, but the point is that in uh, it, uh, your original point was um, that some mail doesn't get counted because it's not postmarked. I live in Oregon. Right. The, the, the ballot that I send back is in a postage paid envelope. There will not be a postmark on it because the way the post office does it, you're right, they don't postmark some postage. But the postage that they don't postmark is the postage that has that pre-printed postage already on it. If your, if your envelope has an actual stamp on it, in some states, you have to put a stamp on your ballot. If it has an actual stamp on it, it will get postmarked because they have to spoil that stamp so it can't be reused. And so, you know, there's two different kinds of sorting machines that do this. And you're right, Louis DeJoy has destroyed over 600 of these multi-million-dollar high-speed sorting machines that each one of them can sort 30 to 40,000 pieces of mail an hour. And uh or a minute, excuse me. And uh it's it's just my how
10: to tell her tell me that they don't have time to postmark all letters that come out of their mailboxes. I personally asked to tell her that. Also Um, there, there's a thing regarding the dates. I mean, like you know, if these t- things don't get postmarked, but they come in by the time of elections, uh, some you know, by November third, November fourth, um, some uh, were, are, some laws are doing that. But let me tell you exactly what you said earlier in this um, today, uh, the six week thing for mail to get to play, to people. Um, I got a piece of mail that was dated February 28th. I got it over five weeks late on uh april 11th this year so right. um yeah i don't think that anybody should use uh, as greg powell has said you're insane if you vote by mail this year so.
3: yeah well i, I wouldn't and say you're insane i, think, I would say I it depends on what state you live in carrie um you know i voted by mail and uh my vote was recorded i the, here in oregon they dropped the ballots on october 14th and i got my ballot on october 15th um so it depends on where you live but the fact of the matter is that, as as you correctly pointed out, this administration has been kneecapping the post office for two reasons. This has been going on for uh, two decades now in an effort to privatize the post office. And I'm convinced that Louis DeJoy thinks he's going to get that contract. And then secondly, to mess with the elections. Special thanks to Louise Hartman, Sean Taylor, Nate Nate Atwell, Jamie Holly, Joyce the Hammer Nance, Nigel Peacock, Sue Nethercote, Patrick White, Geraldine Halbert, Dave Fulton, Ron Hartenbaum, Chase Spross, Nicholas Miller, Pat Sweeney, and Jabbermocky, the folks who helped bring you this program. And you bring you this program. (laughs) Thank you so much for listening, participating, sharing, watching, interacting, and telling your friends about us. Get out there, get active. Be sure to vote. Tag your it. You've been it. listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and
2: video archives, visit tomhartman.com.